Welcome to Resting Witch Face, your one-stop haunt for all things spooky, bitchy, and more. I'm Grant Jacoby. I'm Bailey Bennett. Guys, this is our last episode of 2018. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we, we decided not to release new episodes on Christmas and New Year's. Because they fall on Tuesdays yeah, and like just, we're both going to be away and we didn't... People should be spending time with their families and not listening to us bitch about things about, like uh, the traumas <laughs> of yesteryear yes but we are so happy to be here today we're so happy to wish you guys happy holidays um to bring you the spookiness that you know and love um and it's been like a wonderful year it has um it's it's interesting because i think last year we released our um our great complaint episode of 2017 oh yeah um which I believe to this day is still our least viewed or listened to episode, which honestly. It's fine. We understand. Um, But we figured we'd do something a little more out of our comfort zone. Yeah. We leave things on a positive note. Stay tuned to see what that is. But um, not to start off with though, um, as I think I've, I've hinted at many a time, um, the day has finally come. For, for me to achieve transcendence and to <laughs> finally speak about the, the case of JonBenet Ramsey on this podcast. Um, it's time. It's time. There, there has been a, a few previous episodes where I've been like, well, I'm not going to bring it up, but just a quick discussion about mm-hmm. like, and we have kind of spoken about it in the past, but we've gotten a lot of requests from people who are like just fucking do it already yeah. we know you love it and it's it's a weird thing to say that you love the case of a child murder but it truly is the it's the case that captivates me more than any other and i think that's the case for a lot of people yes. it checks off so many boxes yeah so and i hear you i'm with you i mean it is it is the time of of year um december 25th 1996 was the day that Chambonet was killed. Actually, could have been the twenty sixth. Did I say the twenty fifth or twenty? The twenty fifth. Yeah, it's it so was it was like the years. night of Christmas that it happened. Um, so it could have been like before or after midnight. They're not exactly sure. Um, but I just think it's it's time. I think I've spoken about on this podcast how the one time in my life when I visited Colorado, we were we were in Boulder, like on our way to a wedding rehearsal dinner, and was just like, oh. Just a quick, can we just take a quick little trip uh, sidebar here to the Jambonet Ramsey murder house? I would really appreciate it. So just like on the way to celebrate some nuptials, just kind of like stopped by to, to, to just just to look at it. Um, and it truly was. You gotta. You, you must. You simply must. Um, it was such a, such a strange experience to actually be. We, we obviously like we, we just like drove by in the car you can't go inside people live there which is kind of insane to think about oh but God. just just being there and and seeing it in the flesh was truly crazy because it is yeah. a case that's haunted me for so long um so 
Because we know how much discussion we're going to have on this case, and it's going to take a long time to get through so many of the facts, I think we're just going to get right into it today. Um, and then, dirty, just like yeah, because we're going to mm. finish out, we're going to finish out the episode with some positive things today. Um, but <laughs> new segment to start off with. Um, we're just gonna we're gonna do this. So I got a lot of information today um, from. Wikipedia, obviously. Um, God bless. God bless. Uh, there's a there's a really good page about this case, clearly, but also got a lot of great stuff from an article in Vanity Fair called Jean Benet Ramsey Missing Innocence, written by um, Anne Louise Bardock. Bardock. I'm not sure how you say her last name, but um, it was published in 1997. It's it's actually a really fascinating article, um, and I always love when you can find something that actually came out around the time that mm-hmm. th- that the case happened. Um, so I would definitely recommend that one if you if you want more information on this case. But, I mean, I think it goes without saying, for a case like this, we're never going to be able to get through everything and we're never going to be able to cover all the theories. And, right. um, and I think this, it also goes without saying, but we... <laughs> don't have any more information than anybody else does and anything that we (laughs) any opinions that we give are obviously just conjecture um because i know that this this has been a touchy case and there have been a lot of defamation lawsuits brought against people for making accusations against certain people in this case clearly we don't know what we're talking about what else is new but all we can do is is try with the rest of the world to make sense of a horrible tragedy so Let's get into it. Let's get into it. I almost want to like lie down for this. I can't. <laughs> I would love if you did that. I'm I'm well, in our old recording setup. I totally could have just like sank into the couch. Oh, true. Oh my God. R.I.P. When we used yeah. to sit on a really comfortable couch. So Jean Benet Ramsey was born in 1980 in Atlanta, Georgia, and was the younger of two children of Patsy and John Ramsey. She had an older brother named Burke, who was born in 1987. Jean-Benet was enrolled in kindergarten at High Peaks Elementary School in Boulder, Colorado. John Ramsey was a businessman who was the president of Access Graphics, which was a computer system company that made him quite wealthy. His first marriage ended in divorce in 1978, and his two adult children, a son and a daughter, lived elsewhere. Interestingly, I never knew this fact. I, was, I didn't know he had children. He had another daughter named Elizabeth, who died in a car crash in 1992. What the fuck? About four years before Jean Benet's death. Oh, that's I, I don't know how I ever missed this, but I'm going to come back to this later because I do think that this is a significant detail. In 1991, John moved his second family to Boulder, where Access Graphics headquarters was located. They purchased a 6,800-square-foot Tudor-style house, which is quite large. Um, I heard it wasn't as big as... Didn't you say it wasn't as big? I, when I saw it, it didn't, it, it wasn't as grand as I'd expected it to be, but it also was like, I think they've done a lot to make it look more unassuming. Like they have mm. like a large fence around it. And I think like they're trying to not kind of draw attention to the house, Fair. but like 6,800 square feet, just looking at that square footage is an insane house. Uh, it was in one of Boulder's choice neighborhoods and they, they purchased it for about $500,000. That's it? Yeah. But over the next two years, Patsy remodeled and decorated the new home, allegedly spending another $700,000 on it. So we're up at, we're up at like a 1.2 mil. Which granted in 1996 money is probably, or 1991 money is. $7 billion. Yes. 
I mean, the point is, this was a very, very well-off family. Yes. Like, we're not trying to say $500,000 isn't a lot of no, money. <laughs> um, Patsy Ramsey was a former pageant queen herself and entered her daughter in various child beauty pageants uh, that were held in Boulder. Jean Benet had won the titles of America's Royal Miss, Royal Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. Gross. Which seems like a lot of wins for someone who was six at the time that she died. Yeah. Like, I, that's uh, just, it, I don't like it. There's a lot to unpack within the, mm-hmm. the child pageant. Yes, and circuit. I think is a big part of the reason why this case is so, like, oh, well-known is because of those photos of her from her pageants where she's, like, wearing her tiny crown and, like, mm-hmm. has makeup and her hair is all done up and she looks stunning, but she's also a, a toddler. Literal, like a literal <laughs> child. Um. Anyway, however... um. Yeah, so apparently to the other pageant moms in the area, Patsy Ramsey, who had been a Miss America contestant herself, was close to being royalty. So I think at the time, like, after the fact, clearly people have had a lot of issues with it, but I think at the time they were kind of like local celebrities. Mm -hmm. Um, On December 25th, 1996, the Ramseys with JonBenet and their son Burke had had a Christmas dinner at the home of their best friends. Now, this this is also kind of interesting because... So last night, um, Kyle and I were out with like some new acquaintances mm-hmm. and we were out at a bar with like four other people and we're having like very pleasant conversation for a while. And then kind of, I don't, I'm not sure how it came up. I probably brought it up. Um, Jean Benet like came, came up in the conversation and very quickly. It's like, so like, yeah, it's like, we've it's had so a lot strange. of like weather today. So about Jean Benet, <laughs> what do you think happened? But the thing was that, like, as soon as it did come up, everyone at the table was, like, ready and alert and was like, oh, I am here to talk about Mm -hmm. this. And, like, two of the other people at the table truly knew as much about the case as I do. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, this is. You're amongst friends. Yes. It was, like, three hours later and we were still talking about it. So, but the, the thing that came up in that conversation, which I hadn't really heard before, was, like, so that night, the Ramseys go to their best friend's house for Christmas dinner. Um, and then who are their, their best friends are Priscilla and Fleet White, who live about a mile or so away from their home. According to the police reports, the Ramseys arrived home from the Whites at about 10 p.m. What, what these people that I was talking to last night were saying was an important detail was that the Ramseys claimed from the beginning that when they arrived home, both of the children were already asleep mm-hmm. and that they had, like, carried them inside and, like, put them to bed. Okay. So there's, like, some – we'll get more into it. But I hadn't necessarily heard that detail, but they were insisting that this was, like, a big thing in this case. So, gotcha. you know, take it with a grain of salt. So according to so at 5:52 a.m. a 911 call 911 call came in from Patsy Ramsey. Patrol officer Richard French got to the home within 7 minutes of Patsy's call reporting that their 6-year-old daughter had been kidnapped. And I am going to like I've taken a lot of direct quotes from the Vanity Fair article because they just like really describe the moments very well, yeah. so some of these are direct quotes. So, quote, John Ramsey directed me through the house and pointed out a three-page handwritten note which was laid on the wooden floor just west of the kitchen area, French reported. 
Subsequently, French told colleagues that he had been struck by how differently the two parents were reacting. While John Ramsey, cool and collected, explained the sequence of events to him, Patsy Ramsey sat in a chair in the sunroom, sobbing. Something seemed odd to French, and later he would recall how the grieving mother's eyes stayed riveted on him. He remembered her gaze and her awkward attempt to conceal it, peering at him through splayed fingers held over her eyes. Mm-hmm. Every, uh, I'm already like, everything about Patsy's behavior in the subsequent events just makes me, makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Like, ew, how gr- Like, imagine seeing someone sobbing, like, but you could also see them look, oh my God. Oh my God. And just That's being like. spooky. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that, actually that detail before. Yep. So they conducted an initial search of the house, but did not find any sign of forced entry. Officer French went to the basement and came to a door that was secured by a wooden latch. He paused for a moment in front of the door, but eventually walked away without opening it. So, uh, According to police reports, Patsy had given two accounts of the morning's events. Quote, Mrs. Ramsey told me that she had gone into JonBenet's room at about 545 to wake her up, which like, why? Um, <laughs> officer That's just far too early <laughs> yeah. to be waking a child up. Like, it's time for pageant practice. But, I mean, Prob- uh, honestly, maybe. Officer French wrote that. Um, finding the room empty, she went down the spiral staircase, which were the back stairs, where she discovered the ransom note. Later, she would say that she found the note on the spiral back stairs when she went down to make coffee and then ran back up to Jean Benet's room to see if she was there. Um, the note was written, written in, in upper and lowercase printed letters on paper torn from a legal pad found in the house. Also discovered on the pad was the practice note beginning Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. This was an immediate red flag as obviously kidnappers, quote, do not usually spend hours at a crime scene after murdering their victims in order to compose letters. I am now going to read the full ransom note, which is quite long but i it's i think it's important no no no, please do okay so it's it's not that long mr ramsey listen carefully exclamation point we are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction we respect your business but not the country that it serves at this time we have your daughter in our possession she is safe and unharmed and if you want if you want her to see 1997 you must follow our instructions to the letter you will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains to proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but we will, but be warned we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. 
You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. Oh my God. Okay. That's like a wild ride. It's truly psycho. So the validity of this ransom note has been repeatedly questioned, um, with many people believing that the Ramses and Patsy specifically had written the letter themselves. Insiders say that John didn't seem to be in a rush to collect the ransom money, and it was never actually taken out of the bank. Quote, out of the 74 names submitted for testing, Patsy's handwriting was the only one that set off alarm bells, says an investigator who is closely involved with the testing of the ransom note. Um, A Colorado Bureau of Investigation report concludes, quote, there are indications that the author of the ransom note is Patricia Ramsey, but the evidence falls short to support that definitive conclusion. According to E! News, Mm. quote, (laughs) one of the strangest parts of the Ramsey case has always been the ransom note, which made no sense given the fact that John Bonet's body was found in the house a few hours later. Forensic linguist James Fitzgerald commented on the three-page and 385-word ransom note and concluded, according to the Daily Mail, our most reputable source, um, that it was, quote, clearly staged and had deliberate spelling mistakes. Misspellings and other mistakes were made to cover the fact that the writer was, in fact, a native speaker of the English language. Also, the note demanded $118,000, which was the rounded amount of John John Ramsey's bonus that year, which honestly makes me want to die because that is so much money for that to be your fucking Christmas your, your bonus. Christmas bonus, but that's that that fact has always been so fascinating to me. It's so like, crazy. Like that's just so specific. Right. And if you know that if you know how wealthy this family is, that's You'd, honestly not that much money to ask yeah. for. No. Because yeah. clearly they have, if that's his Christmas bonus, like it's Trump change for them. Really? Um, Fitzgerald said that the note was not written by a kidnapper or, quote, a real criminal, but someone who had written the note on a pad of paper used by Patsy Ramsey in their home. The note was unusually long, and most ransom notes are 50 to 60 words. It took the experts 21 minutes or more to copy the ransom note and noted that it would have taken more time to think about what to write. So it's like, they're suggesting if this was an intruder that they were in the home for probably 30 minutes just writing this like doing a practice one and being like mm-hmm. oh i don't like that and then like writing a new one it's it's just so unlikely yeah insanely unlikely the pen and paper were not left out but were returned to their rightful place by whoever wrote this note mm. so it was like that's that's another weird detail. It didn't even like leave it in the notepad. Right. It was like right. They didn't leave it in the notepad, but they put the, they put the notepad and the pen like back where they found it. I'm gonna really try and save all my opinions until the end. I know. Um, also, this is so weird. But many lines from the letter were taken from movies like Speed, Dirty Harry, and other films. So I know. I like. I know all this. Yeah, so but it's, like, it's every time I'm like, no way. Oh <sighs> okay. Fitzgerald said that the note appeared to be, quote, written by a maternal person, which I don't really know what that means. 
Um, but previous handwriting analysis had concluded that the handwriting was similar to that of Patsy Ramsey, but it was not conclusively Patsy who wrote the note. Um, the letters SBTC at the end of the note have also been a mystery. There are many guesses about what the letters could stand for, but none have been confirmed. I, I don't have any answer about that. I have no idea what that could mean. No. Yeah. Um, so back to the day of the kidnapping. A forensics team was dispatched to the house. Um, and the team initially believed that that child had been kidnapped. And John Bonet's bedroom was the only room in the house that was cordoned off to prevent contamination of evidence. Like, why? Which is insane. Insane. Like, they cordoned off her bedroom and the rest of the house, people were just walking in and out all day. Also, like, why hadn't they checked the whole house? It's like, crazy. I don't, like, like they, even before they, they called the police. Like, you think that the first thing you would do as a parent is to even like even if yeah. your rational brain is like my child is gone you would check every inch of that house. Right. And like and that's the thing that's crazy though is that even when they even when the police arrived they did an initial investigation. Like how did you miss that? Like just like we're like oh let's just not go in the basement. Yeah. So I mean it wouldn't have would it really matter though she was still dead. Right, but it's just like sorry. Can, I, okay. Yeah, continue. Sorry. Okay. Okay. The issue was that this whole case was they bungled the investigation from the first moment. So no process was taken to prevent contamination of evidence in the rest of the house, as we said. Um, meanwhile, friends and the family's minister arrived at the home to support the Ramses. So like the, like as soon as it, as soon as people started arriving in the morning, Patsy's like calling her friends to come over and like mm -hmm. help her, which is great. Um, victim advocates also arrived at the scene. Visitors cleaned up and wiped down surfaces in the kitchen, possibly destroying other evidence. Boulder detective, <laughs> I know. Boulder detective Linda Arndt arrives at about 8 a.m. with the goal of awaiting the kidnappers' instructions, but there was never any attempt to claim the money. Hmm, weird. <laughs> you don't say. Huh, how odd. So seven hours after the 911 call was made was when they found the strangled, bludgeoned body of Jean Benet in, the store, in a storage room in the basement. So at about 1 o'clock p.m., Detective Linda Arndt asked John and Fleet White, who was their family friend, to search the house to see if anything seemed amiss. Which is also so weird. Like, get the father, get the family out of the house and search it your fucking self. Like, I guess they're trying to say, like, since you live here, look around and see if anything seems weird to you. Well, also, yeah, because at this time they're working off of a supposed kidnapping, right. not a murder. For sure. Um, but <laughs> so John and White started their started their search in the basement. John finally opened the latched door that Officer French had failed to open and found his daughter's body in one of the rooms. Jaminet's mouth was covered with duct tape. A nylon cord was found around her wrists and neck, and her torso was covered by a white blanket. John yanked the tape from her mouth, and according to an investigator, quote, holding her with both hands around her at the waist, the way you would hold a doll, carried her upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. Quote, what was interesting was when Ramsey brought the body upstairs, he never cried, related a source present at the time. Quote, but when he laid her down, he started to moan while peering around to see who was looking at him. Ugh. When Why would you put her on the floor? Why would you move her? That, yeah, where, like, oh God. Like, yeah, wait, who yeah. has that reaction to seeing your child's dead body for you to be like, for you to immediately pick her up? 
Looking for a show. <sighs> Just bringing, bringing her up so that everyone could take a look. I mean, I understand, like, I guess you have the instinct to want to protect your child and to want, like, I can understand. trying to revive her? Right, I can understand going over to the body and, like, shaking it and being, like, seeing if she's breathing or, like, trying to check her pulse. But, like, just immediately picking her up and bringing her upstairs where you know know everyone is waiting. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And that's, sorry, another thing. If you truly found your daughter's dead body, and you were and you were the father of the household. Would you not do everything in your power to make sure that your wife didn't see it? You would think so. I will say it is. And we've said this before: is that it is impossible to know what your reaction would be. Right. Like I think the fact that like, he didn't cry actually, he was probably in. You were in shock. Devil's advocate. Sure. You're in shock. Sure. However. <laughs> Everything else before that, right. and then the moaning, like, 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 also fucking creepy, crying right. through, like, with peeking out through your hands, and also yeah. moaning and looking around a room. I, I can't. Ugh. Yeah. So obviously, when Jamine was moved, the crime scene was contaminated, and critical forensic evidence was disturbed for the returning forensics team. Detective French told fellow officers that he felt awful that he had not discovered it himself in his search of the house, like. Uh huh. Can you like? I wonder like, what if that could have been the break in the case that like the detective found the body and didn't disturb the body and didn't disturb any of the evidence? Like you never know. Oh, I mean, it's hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess I just I, how did people not know? Like, do people really not understand about the concept of contaminating a crime scene? I know. Well, I mean, I guess you could argue this was like a safe town and like this kind of thing didn't happen a lot and maybe they didn't have the experience with it but I, I would guess. you would think it's like detective 101 anyway Ugh. we're we're always very quick to blame the investigators we don't know the situation but so each of the ramses provided handwriting blood and hair samples to the police john and patsy participated in a preliminary preliminary interview for more than two hours and Burke who was around who was nine years old at the time was also interviewed within the first couple of weeks following Jean Benet's death the autopsy revealed that Jean Benet had been killed by strangulation and a skull fracture the official cause of death was quote asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma there was no evidence of conventional rape although sexual assault could not be ruled out Although no semen was found, there was evidence that there had been a vaginal injury, and at the time of the autopsy, it appeared her vaginal area had been wiped with a cloth. Her death was obviously ruled a homicide. Um, a garrote that was made um, from a length of nylon and the broken handle of a paintbrush was tied around John Bonnet's neck and had apparently been used to strangle her. Part of the bristle end of the paintbrush was found in a tub containing Patsy's art supplies, but the bottom third of it was never found despite extensive searching of the house by the police in subsequent days. I don't know what to make of that at all. The autopsy also revealed a, quote, vegetable or fruit material which, which may represent pineapple, which JonBenet had eaten a few hours before her death. Photographs of the home taken on the day when JonBenet's body was found show a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table with a spoon in it. Wasn't it like pineapple and milk? That's what I've also heard, yeah, which is, is so, so gross, gross, but also such a specific thing. Because mm-hmm. this, this is the detail that I was telling that I was talking about that that we were discussing last night was that the if the parents were maintaining that the kids were already asleep when they got home, then 
that's clearly not the case. If she had the undigested pineapple in her stomach and they found it in the kitchen, it's like they were... she woke up in the middle of the night and came down and wanted a midnight snack. Mm -hmm. Or they were awake when they got home Mm -hmm. and that's when everything played out, whatever happened. Um, Wasn't there... I remember once hearing like a heart was drawn on her hand. Or is that something I didn't. I didn't see that. Um, They said that both John and Patsy said that they did not remember putting the bowl on the table or feeding pineapple to JonBenet. Police reported that they found um, Burke Ramsey's fingerprints on the bowl. So the Ramseys have always maintained that Burke slept through the entire episode until he was awakened several hours after the police arrived, which, like, it's very believable. Also... If I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to just keep interrupting because if you're if one of your children was missing, you would just let the other one keep sleeping. No, like it's like of course you wouldn't want to alarm them, but we this would, was you like would probably hear your mother screaming, right? And you would, I mean, this is a terrible example, but like on the day that nine eleven happened, my mom like came to pick me up from school because she just wanted her mm-hmm. kids to be close to her. She wanted to be yeah. able to look at them and, and know that they were safe. And like I have to imagine that that would be that would be your first instinct was to be like I I don't I want my son next to me I want to be holding him and know that he's okay. Unless he. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Have have you you've heard the nine one one call right? I don't know if I have. Oh. Oh my god! I don't know if I have. You should listen to it. Okay. Cause, well, because that's all the thing is like she, she, Patsy was like screaming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. Backtracking. Um, so in December of 2003, forensic investigators extracted enough material from a mixed blood sample found on JonBenet's underwear to establish a DNA profile. That DNA belonged to an unknown male person. The DNA was submitted to CODIS, a database containing more than 1.6 million DNA profiles, but the sample did not match any profile in the database. In October 2016, new forensic analysis revealed that the original DNA actually contained genetic markers from two individuals other than JonBenet. So I think people have looked at this as a little bit of a smoking gun of like, oh, there was an intruder. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen a lot of evidence of them just saying that the DNA could have been there from when the underwear were manufactured. Like, mm-hmm. it could mean absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, experts, media commentators, and the Ramses have identified potential suspects in the case. Boulder police initially focused almost exclusively on John and Patsy, but by October 1997 had over 1,600 people on their list of persons of interest for the case. Oh, my God. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Many errors that were made in the initial investigation complicated the resolution of the investigation, obviously. Um, Those errors included loss and contamination of evidence, lack of experienced and technical staff on the investigation. Because it was Christmas, people were just like, they they literally, like, it was like their B team was around. Mm. Um, I'm sure even if it was the B team, they might not necessarily be like doing their most like thorough, dedicated mm-hmm. work because it was Christmas. Right. It's probably like, oh, I just want to get out of here. Right. Um, evidence, uh, the evidence shared with the Ramses during the investigation, which is not supposed to do that, um, and delayed informal interviews with the parents. Lou Smith was a detective who came out of retirement in early 1997 to assist the district attorney's office with the case. In May of 1998, he presented his findings to the Boulder police with other staff members of the DA's office, concluding that the evidence pointed away from the Ramses. 
However, they were unable to successfully challenge the police department's steadfast belief that the Ramses were guilty. According to another article that I found on The Guardian, it is understandable why the police suspected the Ramses. When a child is killed at home, it is statistically likely that a parental figure was involved. The Ramses, according to the police, were reluctant to be interviewed, and John was overheard um, on the phone an hour after finding John Bonet making arrangements for his family to leave the state. He has since said that he was just trying to keep them safe. Like, okay. Uh-huh. They were also swift to hire lawyers, suspiciously quick in the eyes of many. As for the date on her gravestone, which, so I think a lot of people also bring this up, is that the date on her gravestone is December 25th, although they don't actually know if she died on the 25th or the 26th. So I think people have argued like, oh, they actually know what the date was. Mm. But the the Ramses... The, the ransom that was found on the 26th, correct? Yes. The, the, they called the police at 5.52 a.m. on the 26th. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But the Ramses have said that they chose that date because it was the last time that they saw their daughter alive. But it it is an interesting detail. Because if... That's odd. I mean, if the theory that I think we both, you know, agree on, if that was the case, it probably happened, like, right after they got home from the party. And it would have been the 25th. Anyway, the DA's office sought to take control of the investigation. Due to... The animosity between the police and the DA's office and the pressure to obtain a conviction, Colorado Governor Roy Romer interceded and named Michael Kane as different one, as a special <laughs> prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. Two of the lead investigators in the case who had opposing views, Smith and Steve Thomas, resigned. Smith because he believed that the investigation had incompetently overlooked the intruder hypothesis, and Thomas because of the DA because the DA's office had interfered and failed to support the police investigation of the case. A grand jury was convened beginning September 15, 1998, to consider indicting the Ramses for charges relating to the case. In 1999, the grand jury returned a true bill to charge the Ramses with placing the child at risk in a way that led to her death and with obstructing an investigation of murder based on the probable cause standard applied in such grand jury proceedings, which I don't think I knew. Like the grand jury actually came back with like wanting to indict them. But the Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter did not prosecute them because he didn't believe that he could meet the higher standard of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is required for a criminal conviction, which I I do understand because I do think a lot of the evidence is circumstantial. But it's it is very telling to know that a grand jury looked at this evidence and thought that there was enough to convict. That's fascinating. Yeah. So. Just, a, just a, a few more details about the more boring case stuff. Um, Mary Lacey, who was the next Boulder County DA, took over the investigation from the police on December 26, 2002. In April 2003, she agreed with a federal judge who sat on a 2002 libel case that evidence in the suit is, quote, more consistent with a theory that an intruder murdered John Bonet than it was with the theory that Mrs. Ramsey did. On February 2nd, 2009, Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner announced that Stan Garnett, the new Boulder County District Attorney, was turning the case over to his agency and that his team would resume investigating. Garnett found that the statute of limitations for the crimes identified in the 1999 grand jury true bill had expired and did not pursue review of the case against the Ramses. 
In October 2010, the case was reopened. New interviews were conducted following a fresh inquiry by a committee that concluded that included state and federal investigators. Police were expected to use the latest DNA technology in their investigation. There was no new information gleaned from those interviews, according to ABC News. It was reported in September 2016 that the invest- investigation into JonBenet's death continues to be an active homicide case. So I also like I also saw a recent article, like as recent as May, but it was in like the National Enquirer that said that they were exhuming her body. I do not think that that happened. No, also the National Enquirer, like I'd say probably once every six months, I see something that's like, Jean Benet's killer has been right. found. I mean, and it's course. always in one of those trashy mm-hmm. magazines that also says that Elizabeth Taylor had an affair with Michael Jackson. And right, of course. They're actually alive and Tupac is on the moon. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's a lot of shit in this case that there's a lot of rumors. And anyway. <sighs> I just said so many words. Okay. There are two main theories about who could have brought on the death of Jean Monnet. One is the intruder theory that was pursued by the Boulder, Dist- Boulder DA's office with whom the Ramses developed a relationship. Although the police may... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. goes all the way to the top. It goes all the way to the top. Although the police may have had the Ramses under a, quote, umbrella of suspicion, they and the prosecutors followed leads for intruders partly due to an un- unidentified boot mark left in the basement room where JonBenet's body was found. Early suspects included neighbor Bill McReynolds, who normally played Santa Claus around town, um, a former family housekeeper named Linda Hoffman Pugh, and a man named Michael Highgoth, who died in an apparent suicide shortly after Jean Benet's death. Hundreds of DNA tests were performed to find a match to the DNA recovered during her autopsy, but clearly a match has not been found. Um, Smith assessed the evidence and concluded that an intruder had committed the crime. Smith's theory was that someone had broken into the Ramsey's house through the broken basement window. The intruder subdued Jean Benet using a stun gun and took her down to the basement. JonBenet was killed and her ransom note was left. Smith's theory was supported by former FBI agent John E. Douglas, who had been hired by the Ramsey family. Believing that the Ramseys were innocent, Smith resigned from the investigation, as I said, in 1998, five days after the grand jury convened against the Ramseys. While no longer an official investigator on the case, Smith continued to work on it until his death in 2010. Stephen Singular, um, author of the book Presumed Guilty, an investigation into the JonBenet Ramsey case, the media, and the culture of pornography, which is a very long book title, oh. refers to consultations with cybercrime specialists who believe that JonBenet, due to her beauty pageant experience, could have attracted the attention of child pornographers and pedophiles, which, you know, is definitely possible. Um, but it was determined that there had been more than 100 burglaries in the Ramsey's neighborhood in the months before JonBenet's murder, which is a lot. Um, there were also 38 registered sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey's home. In 2001, former Boulder County prosecutor Trip DeMuth and Boulder County Sheriff's Detective Steve Ainsworth stated that there should be a more aggressive investigation of the intruder theory. Um Mm-hmm. One of the individuals that Smith identified as a suspect under his intruder theory was Gary Howard Oliva, who has to have three names because he's mm-hmm. a murderer, um, who was arrested. You, you know why they do that, right? Yeah, because there's other 
there's a lot of other people named Gary Oliver. Yeah. yeah. Um, who was arrested for, quote, two counts of attempted sexual exploitation of a child and one count of sexual exploitation of a child in June 2016. Um, Oliver was a registered sex offender and was identified as a suspect in October 2002. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Sorry. Um, also, John Mark Carr, who is a 41-year-old elementary school teacher, was arrested in Bangkok, Thailand on August 15, 2006, when he falsely confessed to murdering JonBenet. He claimed that he, was, he had drugged, sexually assaulted, and accidentally killed her. According to CNN, quote, authorities also said that they did not find any evidence linking Carr to the crime scene. He had provided only basic facts that were publicly known and failed to provide any convincing details. His claim that he had drugged JonBenet was doubted because the autopsy indicated that no drugs were found in her body. DNA samples that were taken from Carr did not match the DNA found on JonBenet's body. So, for reasons we'll never understand, this man felt that he needed to confess to JonBenet's murder, but he did not do it. I mean... This is also nothing new. I think right. that in most, whenever th there's like a high profile case, especially if something's open to the public mm -hmm. for people who, I mean, it's, you hear about all the time, people call in and they're like, my father's the Zodiac. Right. Like for sure. I'm actually the Lindbergh baby. Like it's just, <laughs> I'm the Lindbergh baby. Um, yes, completely. And I think some of the other details that I've heard that have kind of, helped to debunk the intruder theory was like this this broken window in the basement mm -hmm. theory that was there was like there was like the cobwebs that were mm -hmm. like pushed away from the inside not from the outside yeah. and then um I, I was also reading that just like because the house was so huge like it would have if it even if it were intruder it would have needed to be an intruder who like intimately knew mm -hmm. what the house like the, the floor plan of the house in order to be able to like find JonBenet's room, take her, bring her down back down to the basement without like waking anybody up, it's like just not that realistic. And for them to be there for long enough, to, like for thirty minutes, writing a ransom note, like it's just it's and it's, that she wasn't drugged, so she like why wasn't she crying out? Like right. when her parents have heard, right? It's it's just a, a little bit hard to believe. Um, so obviously, the second group of theories revolves around the fact that a family member was involved in her death. So Bulger police initially concentrated almost exclusively upon John and Patsy Ramsey. According to Meg Greg McCrary, a retired profiler with the FBI, quote, statistically, it is a 12 to 1 probability that it's a family member or a caregiver who is involved in the death of a child. From the police's perspective, they did not see evidence of a forced entry, saw evidence of staging like the ransom note, and did not find the Ramseys cooperative in helping them solve the death of their daughter. The Ramseys had stated that their reluctance was due to their fear that there would not be a full investigation into the intruder theory and that they would be hastily selected as key suspects in the case. Like, okay, so you don't <laughs> want to be considered a suspect, so you're going to act like right. you're a suspect. It's like, fine, if you're not a suspect, then, like, let's clear you, and we'll move right along. Like, come in for a damn interview. Oh One theory is that Patsy struck JonBenet in a fit of rage after a bedwetting episode and then strangled her to cover up what had happened after mistakenly thinking that she was already dead. However, she did not have a known history of uncontrolled anger, and it doesn't, it just like, it doesn't seem like something that she would really be capable of. Uh, it wasn't really in her personality. Um, JonBenet's brother later stated that he, we didn't get spanked, nothing of the sort, nothing close, nothing near laying a finger on us, let alone killing your child. 
theoretically, the strangulation could have been a red herring aspect to conceal what had actually happened. Because I think that's another interesting thing, too, is that I don't know. I don't know if they can definitively say if it was the blow to the head or the strangulation that actually killed her. But I think a lot of it points to the blow to the head might have been the actual death, death. cause of death and the strangulation was after. So Burke, who was nine years old at the time of JonBenet's death, was interviewed by investigators at least three times. And the first two interviews did not raise any concerns about him. I guess the third one did. Um, a review by a child psychologist stated that it appeared that the Ramses had, quote, healthy, caring family relationships. In 1998, Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner said during an interview with a news reporter that Burke Ramsey was not involved in the killing of his sister. In May 1999, the Boulder County District Attorney's Office reiterated that Burke Ramsey was not a suspect, and the investigators had never considered him a suspect. A $100,000 reward was offered by the Ramseys in, an, in a newspaper ad on April 27, 1999. Three days later, they submitted to um, separate formal interviews for the first time at the Boulder County Justice Center. Keep in mind that this is in April mm-hmm. that they submit themselves for formal interviews. In 1999, right? 1997. Oh, okay. So it's like... So six, like four months yeah, after. right. Which is right. a long time. Mm-hmm. In 1999, Colorado Governor Bill Owens told the parents of JonBenet Ramsey to, quote, quit hiding behind their attorneys, quit <laughs> hiding behind their PR firm. I mean, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Agree. Although I will say is that there, I feel like there have been a lot of stories where because it's most, it's statistically, it's most likely that the family did it, that the family seems they didn't get like railroaded and they get kind mm-hmm. of accosted and all of their behavior is so yes um what's the word i'm looking for well like it's gets picked apart yes there, there's a word that I people can't. are like looking at them under a microscope and yeah. judging everything that they do mm-hmm. and i think yeah it's a totally fair point that you'd never know how you would grieve and you never know how you you would react in that situation and there's no right way to lose a child um and I think they've gotten a lot of criticism for how they've acted in interviews and like how they don't seem to be comforting each other and like mm-hmm. they just seem weird. Do you know the, do you know the case? Um, I saw it on that like it was some like Netflix show about like confessions mm-hmm. about the guy who was driving with his wife and the children in the back seat and like is like got a foot cramp and like laid on the gas and drove them into yes. the river. And, like, all the children drowned. Yes. And, like, he ended up, like, taking, like, a Valium or something before giving an interview. And so, like, which was kind of used to kind of railroad him. Because yes. it was, like, why were they acting so strange? Or, like, maybe she was on Valium. Like, they, like, were sedated. So it was just, like, yeah. sorry, this is such a sidebar. But, like, That's I'm just okay. thinking, thinking of, like, that. And, like, the case of, like, Johnny Gosh and his mom and how she was kind of railroaded in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I also, I think. I th- yeah. I, can, well, are we allowed to say what we think happened? Well, think or are we waiting? We're, we can talk at the end. Yeah. Okay. I'm almost at the end. Okay. I, mean, I wasn't sure if it was, like. No, because I know there's been, a, as you mentioned, a lot of lawsuits around. I mean, I'm, this I case. think we're allowed to say what we think happened without, like, yeah. Clearly, as we said, we have no idea. <laughs> like, we we have no more evidence than anybody else has. But mm-hmm. um, right, continue. Anyway, as I said, um, in 1999, a Colorado grand jury did vote to indict the parents. It it didn't end up happening, but among the experts. In the case at that time were DNA specialist Barry Sheck and forensic expert Dr. Henry Lee, who you may actually remember from the staircase. 
Um, oh, good old. That's the um, the guy with the ketchup, right? Yes. Oh, God, fucker. No, no, no. Not the guy who ended up being like a fraud. The guy. This was the the guy who like put the ketchup in his mouth and like spit it. Oh out. yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was gross, but like he's actually very good at his job. Okay, on July 9th, 2008, the the Boulder DA's office announced that as a result of newly developed DNA sampling and testing techniques, the Ramsey family members were no longer considered suspects in the case, apparently. Gordon Coombs, a former investigator for the Boulder DA's office, questioned the total absolution of the Ramseys. The police sought to interview Burke Ramsey again in September of 2010, according to Ellen Wood, a high-profile defamation attorney with the Ramsey family who they hired in 1999. Um, the case of JonBenet Ramsey was broadcast on CBS on September 18th and 19th of 2006 and used a group of experts to evaluate the evidence and theorized that Burke hit his sister in the head with heavy objects, perhaps not intending to kill her. Um, it suggested that the ransom letter was an attempt to cover up the circumstances of Jean Bonnet's death. Wood threatened to sue CBS for libel based on its conclusion. So that that's like that's like the big lawsuit that came out. Um, this was a couple of years ago, right? That was in 2016. I thought they said yeah. 2006. No, 2016 was yeah, when. I've, have you yeah. seen that one? I don't think I have. It's really good and it's really convincing. Yeah. Which... I will say, though, to continue to play devil's advocate, is that it's it's when you're watching something that's kind of like, it's almost like even like watching The Staircase. Yes. When you're like, oh, you watch it and you're like, oh, I know what happened. But then all it takes is then to see a different scene. And you're like, well. Yeah. Well, it's really easy for it to be biased as well. Like, I think mm-hmm. this The Staircase was really well made, but it also was pretty much told from Michael Peterson's perspective. And it was 100%. like, and it was his family was there the whole time and they stood by him the whole time. And it's it's mm-hmm. hard. Um but yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty much at the end of the facts here. As I said, there's so much more that we that we could get into. But I think, yeah, why don't you, why, why don't you tell me your opinions? Because I am truly like, my throat is sore from yeah, how no, much no, I just no, talked. You you take a break, have a little sip of water. <laughs> um, I so I really became most interested in the case. I think after the, or upon watching the CBS documentary, uh-huh. because it was the first one that provided a theory that made sense to me. Cause the, the concept of the parents doing it, I was like, okay, like what is the motive? What is the motive? Like, I'm just thinking of different cases of par- of parents murdering their children. Mm-hmm. It's usually that the, the parents either have been abusive or there's a history of abuse or you know, even something as horrible as like the Andrea Yates case where she like, murdered all of her children, like drowned all of her children in the bathtub. I think that was her name. Um, There's some sort of like confession and guilt. And with, with the Ramses and their behavior, I'm I'm thinking particularly of that one interview where like, I I don't remember the details. Maybe you came across in your research of where I think John's giving the interview Mm -hmm. and Patsy's standing next to him, like with her eyes closed. Yeah. And she starts like shaking her head or nodding or whatever yes. it was. It was like the opposite of what she was supposed to be doing mm-hmm. and then like changed back to what it was supposed to be. Yes. And don't they keep referring to like her as like the child, like the child is gone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of behavior that is very detached and doesn't yeah. make sense. And I just don't think that, I don't think that there was an intruder. I don't think that someone would have written that note. I don't think, I, I think the, the Ramses. My gut tells me that the Ramses were in on it somehow. Yeah. And it never, I think that's the reason I never really made a whole lot of sense because I was like, I don't really, like, what would be the motive until that CBS documentary, which really painted the picture that Burke was 
kind of a sociopath. Yeah. And murdered his sister. And yeah. the Patsy and John were put in this horrible scenario where they had a child dead by the hand of the other. And they thought, mm-hmm. what, what do we do? And they created the sloppiest, mm-hmm. messiest attempted kidnap cover-up they could. And mm-hmm. which explains all of their behavior. I think just really was like, it was just like, yep, that explains all their behavior. And in that documentary, they show those interviews with Burke. Yeah. Talking about his sister and the way that he talks about her is very detached. Yeah. It's very, um, it's odd. It's very creepy. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to agree. Um, and I, you know, w- with Burke, I think, I think it's entirely possible that if something did happen, it might have been entirely an accident. Yes. And like, because he was nine years old, like mm-hmm. he was also a child and I think possibly didn't didn't know his own strength or didn't understand how to manage his anger or whatever it could have been. Like people have said like he could have hit her with a flashlight or some That's other, yeah, some other heavy object and just didn't realize what he was doing um, and that it either killed her or knocked her out to the point where her parents thought she had died. Um, and I do think, I do think that that explanation makes more sense as well, more sense than Patsy or even John being the one who hurt her. Because I think if it had been one of the parents, it would be very difficult for the other one mm-hmm. to say like, "I'm going to support you and make sure that yep. you don't go down for this." I think like even if that, even if initially they did that, like I think there would be a breaking point where you would say like, "No, enough is enough." Like my my husband killed yeah. her or like my wife killed her. Like I think the thing that wouldn't unite you enough to the point where you could keep this a secret for your entire life is is your other child being mm-hmm. at risk. And that's why I think it's so fascinating that John had already lost another child four mm-hmm. years prior mm-hmm. because I think I think that gives you even me, even more motivation to say like not again. I am not about to lose a third child because you've been through that trauma already. Yeah. And I think that's I think that could be really significant. And obviously like this is also circumstantial and I don't know, but I don't want to get sued. <laughs> I think I think it's also possible that like in these interviews with Burke it could be it, because he was so young at the time and because it was probably such a traumatic experience, he could have even repressed it to the point where he is not aware that he did this. Like he oh. might truly believe that he that he didn't hurt mm-hmm. her because especially if his parents have told him that his whole life, you know, it's like you can repress things to the point where they don't even exist to you anymore because I think Absolutely. it's possible that he doesn't even know. But... Yeah, I don't know. That's why this case is so fascinating. I think more so than a lot of other cold cases where it's like we have no leads. We have no idea mm-hmm. what happened. With this, it's like it feels like it's so close and it feels like it's so close to being solved. I don't think they'll ever solve it. I don't I, think they'll ever solve it in the way that they're going to like put like stamp like yeah. case closed yeah. because uh, no. both the Ramseys are dead, correct? No, John is alive. John is alive. Mm-hmm. Patsy died a long time ago. She right? died in 2006 of cancer mm-hmm. um, and she had she had already been in remission before Jean Monnet was killed. She had been struggling with, I think it was breast cancer for a long time, which is which is very sad. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just John and Burke surviving at this point, and it's like who knows what what the fuck John is doing? Like probably just yeah. There's just there's so much to this case, and there's so much nuance, and I think just the the idolization of her 
before mm-hmm. her murder. Yeah. And the sexualization of her and kind of this like pageant circuitry definitely opens up a lot of the intruder, you know, pedophile yeah. theory. Mm-hmm. Um ugh, it's it's I I would equate this similarly with the staircase and with even something like the Ketty Cabin murders that we mm-hmm. did a couple episodes ago. Of those cases where I think that we'll never really know what happened because no. there's so much. Well, first of all, in a lot of those these sorts of cases, the evidence gets us destroyed and the crime scene is not handled properly. Yeah, that's a huge part of this. And it becomes a lot about public opinion. Mm-hmm. It becomes a lot about, um, you know, defamation of character, of the families involved, and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. So I, I just... I. I think that there's there could also very easily be something that we have no way like there's there's mm-hmm. a narrative we have no idea could mm-hmm. even be at play. Right. Um yeah, the 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 thing that I'm the most curious about is her actual cause of death and like which came first. Right. Like mm-hmm. so like in theory, if Burke hit her over the head with a flashlight, she goes down. Yeah. Did they decide to like like to stage it to look like she'd been strangled to like kind of throw off the scent that it was just like this like accidental death yeah was she still alive and like someone panicked and we're like like that's oh my god it's disgusting to think about yeah because i do think that if the strangulation came after that does help to support the theory of it being someone in the family because i think the intruder theory is more like they strangled her to quiet her and then mm-hmm. took her to the basement and like killed her there. The intruder theory makes no sense. I know. Because was why, then why leave a ransom note? Why leave a ransom note if she was already dead? Right. Like, okay, so, okay, devil's advocate. So that someone wanted to kill her or like wanted to like hurt John Ramsey or yep. somehow. Right. They break into the house. They murder John Benet. Mm-hmm. They, they leave a note to make it look like they didn't. Like, it just, it doesn't make right. any sense. Like, why stick around? To write that note for the, like, all it would take is, like, mm-hmm. someone to get up and get a glass of water mm-hmm. or someone to he- notice something, like, is out of the ordinary and, like, they're caught. Right. It doesn't, the the intruder theory makes absolutely no fucking sense. And as you mentioned, what, like, someone, if someone were to break into that house and to to pull off this sort of crime, they mm-hmm. would have to know intimate details of yes. family's movements. Um, where her the, bedroom was. Where her bedroom was, where the basement was, mm-hmm. where the pad of notepaper. Like, there are a lot of things, like, there's so much room for error. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense other than that. She died in that house after that Christmas party. Or the parents came home. She was dead. Yeah. Because I think I'm pretty sure the kids were with them at the Christmas party. Oh, oh, oh I see. Because I think I think it was like they – yeah, the kids were with them at the Christmas party. But they were saying like when they got home, like they had fallen asleep in the car. And they carried them bullshit. inside. And Absolute like bullshit. I'm sorry. I just – I yeah. really – I think that it's horrible. And I really, really hope that – well, I, I hope that whoever did it gets brought to justice, whoever it is. Yeah. In, in one way or another. I think that it's just, at the end of the day, it's just, it's a tragedy. Yeah. It's, and it will never, it will, it will never stop captivating people because it is, it is so sad, but it's also just so, so fascinating to so many people to try to, to try to figure out what happened because I think the relief of ha- of knowing and the relief of like having justice for her would be so huge to so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, I think it may never, I, I agree. I think it may never happen. And I think it comes back to that for the first day of that investigation when so many things were overlooked and, and they fucked up so much that it's just 
even even if they like had enough evidence to convict, I could see it being overturned anyway because of this like tampering with evidence and mm-hmm. all these mistakes that were made. So <clears throat> I don't know. Tell us your theories, yeah. guys. Like we, yeah, we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear. I think I have. A, I, th- I think a lot of people agree on the, on like the Burke Ramsey theory at this point, but there's well, it's what the current narrative is right, right now for sure. I rem- I mean I remember, oh, like I, 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 this case also just is such like a grocery store case to me. Yeah, like I just remember going grocery shopping and like oh it was on the cover of every single magazine. For, yep. I mean for mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. it was always either on People or Us Weekly or National Enquirer. Right, and I remember when the narrative was that. Was it John Mark Carr? Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name? I remember when, like, that was the hot theory. Right. Patsy Ramsey was the hot theory for a long time. So right. it's circling around to Burke almost kind of makes sense because he's the only, like, he and John are the only ones left living. Right. Um, and I wonder why I it's it, it's though. never, the narrative has never really shifted to John, as far as I can tell, which which I think Yeah, it's always either been Patsy or Burke. Yeah. Um. Yeah, send us your thoughts. Yeah. If if there's something that we've missed, or if there's like a detail of the case that you find really interesting that you want us to talk about, like send mm-hmm. it to our email, our wfpodcast at gmail.com or send us a little slide into our DMs. Please do. Um okay, so as we said, today instead of ending the episode with complaints, um, since it's our last episode of the year, we kind of wanted to look back on our year and end things on a little bit of a more positive note. So at Grant's wonderful suggestion <laughs> today, we are going to say, talk about three, three things that we really loved this year, three really positive things that had an impact on our year. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Um, you please go first. Okay. I'll do one first. We, okay. can, we can go back and forth. Okay. Um, first thing for me, and th- this is kind of like a cop out cause I'm like lumping some things together. Mm-hmm. It's just like, cause I didn't want it only to be like entertainment. Yeah. Stuff. Um, is like things I've encountered like in the entertainment industry, like in pop culture that like stay with me. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said about, and I, I apologize. I'm definitely repeating myself from an earlier episode about the binge culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. We're so used to getting everything at once. We, mm-hmm. we obsess over it. We move on and we forget about it until it comes back. If it comes back. Yeah. And for me, there've been a couple things this year, specifically haunting of Hill house mm-hmm. on Netflix Star is Born, which I don't think I've even talked about how much I fucking love that film. No. And um, Mitski's album, Be the Cowboy, which I did talk about a mm-hmm. couple episodes about. Those are the three things I feel like that I've, I've encountered in 2018 mm-hmm. um, that, like, I just still think about. I mean, granted, I'm, like, still, like, listening to the Star is Born soundtrack and the Mitski album. But, like, I just, like, keep, like, thinking about mm-hmm. the Bent Neck Lady and about Star is Born. It's just, like, like all these things about those, those three. Like, I feel like I just, like, keep getting, like, deeper and, like, more, like, entrenched in thought about what how they exist mm-hmm. as artistic entities and what they mean to me and what they mean to pop culture. Um, and just so refreshing to like have something to hold on to that isn't just like this like fleeting. Thing. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal when, when, when something in pop culture has a lasting effect these days, honestly, because things move so quickly and because of this binge culture, I totally agree. Um, I have a, a, kind of a similar one, but mine funny, funnily enough, my, like entertainment standout this year was call me by your name. Um, and it was like for a, a technically it came out in 2017, but I saw it for the first time in 2018 and then kept seeing it. Um, and also read the book this, this past year as well. Um, and I just, I just truly haven't been as affected by 
a narrative as I was by that in in a very long time. And I know like you saw it and like mm -hmm. didn't have as as much of an experience with it as as I did. But um, uh, I mean, not in the not definitely not in the same way that you did, but um, definitely very visceral and also yeah. I still think about. So. Yeah, and it's it's it, yeah exactly. It's something I think about all the time. I think it it was like a perfect storm of like different elements for me because like you know I I love a gay narrative. Mm -hmm. I love Timothy Chalamet with every piece of my soul. Mm -hmm. I'm like very attached to Italian culture because of my my upbringing and like this obviously took place in a small town in Italy that I could picture and relate to in a very real way. Um and also, like, the music was done by Sufjan Stevens, who's my favorite artist of all time. Um, yes, I fucking love him, and I have for many, many years. And I think it just, like, all came together to be, like, the most perfect <laughs> cinematic experience for me. And I, like, looking back on the year, can there's, like, many times when I just was going back to the movie theater by myself to just be like, I need to see Call Me By Your Name again. And just, How many times did you see it? I mean, I think I've only seen it, like, three or four times. Um, but... I, that's, that's still sizable. Yeah, because I think I also didn't want to overdo it because I've mm -hmm. done that with pieces of media before where I've just been like, wow, I really killed it because I just did, mm -hmm. saw it too much. Um, but I love, I really like having that experience of of going to see a film by myself. Um, and this was one that I think I've, again, I've talked about this before, but the first time I saw it when the credits rolled, the, I've never seen a theater so like so silent and so just like in it that mm -hmm. no one moved for like five minutes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, it was a really powerful film for me and it was a great part of my year. Totally. My second thing of 2018, I have to say is moving to Brooklyn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I lived in Harlem for two years for those of you who don't know. And no disrespect to Harlem. I, there are a lot of things I really loved about it and actually sometimes like miss about it. But I think that I had kind of, I was kind of at like a, I was at my wits end with Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, I kind of lumped in all of New York as being Manhattan in, in a kind of strange way, even though I knew that wasn't the case. And I just found myself being like, I don't like it here. I don't want to live here. Yeah. I don't like, I don't want to stay here. And then moving to Brooklyn, I suddenly was like, oh, I feel like I was just able to like, like let out a sigh of relief and mm -hmm. just be like, oh, like okay, like this is what it's supposed to be like to be living in like a city and like enjoy myself and yes. be happy and be a neighborhood that I'm, I feel really strongly about and, you know, feel so much more connected and with, you know, other folk yeah, that are like friends that, you know, live nearby, present company included. And it just like, it just improved my quality of happiness just like tenfold. Yeah, completely. I, I obviously love Brooklyn so much and I understand why people love Manhattan, but I do think it's just... It's a much more hectic lifestyle and it's it's harder to relax and it's harder to feel like you're stepping away from your day. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, when I come home, I really can like relax and enjoy being home. Agreed. Um, that's great. <laughs> mine is mine is a little bit silly, but I think like when I look back on 2018, one of the big things for me has been theme parks. And I've talked about okay. it on this podcast yep. before, how Go much I fucking love like Disney World and Universal Orlando and in the past year was lucky enough to visit both of them um, under various strange circumstances. Um, and I think like especially back in February, my sister and I took a trip to, to, to Disney World together and it was the first 
vacation we've ever had just the two of us mm-hmm. um and i think that it was just it was like a really great experience for us to have together um because totally. we have we've we're not like super close um i think growing up we like really had a lot of animosity towards each other and as we've gotten older have definitely gotten along a lot better but have never been like really close friends or anything like that and i think that that experience with her was the most fun we've ever had together and the the least we like we didn't fight at all we just had a really great fun time just like being kids and being like getting to experience just like things just nostalgia and imagination and i and i love that and i think that's i know it sounds really stupid but it's why i love theme parks so much and why i love like harry potter worlds at at universal orlando is because like since i was young i've been really into like reading and fantasy and like all these fantasy worlds and i think that theme parks are the closest that we get to being able to step into those fantasies and i I think it's really incredible um and for me it's just like that's that's the epitome of like how just having the most fun um and getting to really like flex my imagination so Hmm. I had a really fun year doing that, and I'm I'm just I'm gonna always be in love with Disney, and I don't care. Nor should you. <laughs> um, my last kind of big thing of 2018 that I'm really reflecting on is um, has to be my new job. Mm-hmm. And I think as I've touched on a couple weeks ago, you know, I was coming off of finishing my master's, which obviously was a huge accomplishment. Um, yes. I feel like that probably should be if I did knock out my <laughs> my just you know fascination with entertainment I would probably throw in finish my master's but I think that a lot of actually with grad school is I was so burnt out by the end yeah that it it obviously felt this like amazing accomplishment I'm like really really proud of all the hard work I did but it also felt like it was kind of just like getting through it yeah and um and then to go from that into six months of kind of freelance and otherwise unemployed it was very, very hard and it was, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be until it was over. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I started this new job that I love and I feel like I'm really thriving at and I'm in an environment that I, I, you know, could see myself in for a long time. It was also just like, a there was a light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh my God, like I didn't realize how unhappy I was yeah. until I wasn't. And yeah. like, it's, I think it's very, it's very easy to get, caught up in your own mental health and um, to not even realize that you're, I, I think that obviously mental health is a, is a spectrum. And I think that there's sometimes where like I've been able to like sit and like diagnose myself, be like, you are actually depressed right now, not for any particular reason, but because like there's mm-hmm. a chemical imbalance. And like, for me, like this was a scenario where I was like, Oh my God, like you were so unhappy and like, but you just didn't like realize it. Yeah. You weren't like, I wasn't necessarily doing the right things to do to take care of myself. Um, so to now be in a, in a place where it's only been a month, but I just like feel like it's just a huge weight has been lifted off. And, you know, a lot of my stressors in terms of, you know, where am I going to get money from? And like, like, la, 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 mm-hmm. um, have been quelled, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, does it bring a whole lot of new stressors? Like starting a 401k and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, living the nine to five life? Like, absolutely. But it's a very, um, it's just been, a, it, it was worth it was worth the struggle and the the time it took to end up somewhere that I feel very strongly about. So, um, and I hope that that continues into 2019. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm so happy for you that, that that's happened for you. Um, and honestly, literally everything that you just said is 
basically the exact same experience that I had. I think that weirdly, like obviously we're in very different fields and we had very different experiences this year, but I think we did come together a little bit and having like, I also had like a huge career mm -hmm. change this year um, and had a long stint of like mine was three months, but of but freelance and basically unemployment. Yeah, it doesn't matter how long it is. I mean, it's, it's still, it's still a very stressful time that a lot of completely. us go through. And I think that we don't always like know how to talk about. Yes, completely. It was, and it was like a source of almost shame for me for a oh long God, time. Yeah. And it sucks. And like, yeah, my, my third thing was also going to be like this transition into a new job that I had this year. Um, and I think it was a super big decision for me because I, I, I've like kind of talked about this before, but basically I was, I was at, at a job that I, really didn't like um and wanted to make a change and decided to quit which was like really crazy for me and very like something that I wouldn't normally do um like quitting a job without having another one lined up and I I did like this film program for a few months which was I mean the plan was quit my job do this film program and then like look for something else which was a risk really risky move um living in New York which is a really expensive place to live in um and there was a long time there where i yeah i was like i really don't i really don't know what i'm gonna do next like i really did really doesn't seem like something's coming up like this was a really stupid thing to do but at the end of the day i'll never regret it because i ended up finding a job that again i love so much mm -hmm. and like really creatively challenges me and is in such a better environment than what i was in before like i love everyone that i work with so much and i'm like i enjoy going to work every day um and it's much more in line with what i want to be doing um and i think it just it, it really helps to give me some perspective as well because i had i had also been feeling really burnt out in just in my professional life because i you know, you know i moved to the city like less than two months after graduation like I started working right away and I've been working a full-time job since then and it had been like you know four years or whatever of me working in these jobs that I enjoyed but like didn't feel totally fulfilled by um and I think I had this kind of romantic idea of what it would be like to just like work from home and like be like a freelance writer and like not have to go into an office every day Ugh. and just be able to like work from a coffee yeah. shop and like I think I really got a taste of that during those three months where I was doing I was doing some freelance writing but like for the most part was just like trying to figure out what to do with my time and first of all figured out how fucking difficult it is to be a freelancer because you never have any security security um and two was just like you know what? I guess I'm not really missing that much. Like mm -hmm. I enjoy being busy. I enjoy I being in an office every day. Like I would so much rather I go into work now and some days like I get there and then the day like it all of a sudden it's the end of the day and I'm yep. like what the fuck just happened? Yeah. But I would so much rather have that have so much so many things going on that I like can't even keep track of time rather than so many other positions that I've had where I'm just sitting there like w watching the clock tick tick by. Yep. You and know. Yeah. The the feeling of as you just mentioned like the feeling of being like excited to go to work, mm -hmm. but then also like I've had I've had days where the day's over and I'm I'm not like oh but I'm I'm kind of like I could like. Like, I'm not, like, in a rush to get go. Yeah. It's, like, a weird... Same. It's a weird feeling. Yeah, and I think completely, to a degree, like, it fades a bit. Like, when you start... Often when you've when you've been employed for... Unemployed for a long time and you start a new job, of course you're going to be excited about it. And, like, of course you're going to really enjoy it. Um, but I've been at my new job for six months now. And I 
and like, yes, things have gotten way more stressful and I have way more work than I had when I started, but <laughs> I'm still feeling like, wow, I did this and it's great. And 100% could yeah. not agree more. So really just patting ourselves on the back here. Yeah. But, um, no, but I, th I think it's important. I think the, re the, the reason I was thinking about doing this kind of uh, year-end review instead of kind of just complaining, which is what we usually do, is that, you know, there's a lot in the world right now to be negative about. And obviously, you know, you and I are people that thrive off of that. And oh, it we, is my lifeblood. You know, we, we've turned it into some sort of like, like we branded it as part of like who we are and mm -hmm. you know, what this podcast is about is kind of like about the pettiness and about the bullshit. And I think that while that's all good and fun and I have no plans on changing that, mm -mm. I think it's also sometimes nice to be, to be self-reflective in a more positive way and think about, okay, like through all this and especially with the kind of the overwhelming political state we're in right now is sometimes it's good to be like, okay, what are the good things, the the little things? Mm -hmm. Obviously for us, it was a range from little to pretty, you know, life-changing. Yeah. That, um, that can be reflected on in a more positive light. For sure. And like the last, the last thing I'll say is, um, I would encourage you guys to kind of do this as well as an exercise of like looking back on your year and, and and looking at those good things because one of my favorite quotes sentiments I don't I don't know what it is is um, remember when you wanted what you currently have mm. and I think it's really important mm -hmm. to to take a step back sometimes and look at what you have and and think about how much work it took to get to what to get to where you are and to achieve what you've achieved um, and just to like yeah just be be proud of yourself even if it was a small thing or a big thing like you've you are in a much different place than where you were a year ago and honestly if you're in a worse place it's important to take a step back and look at that as well because like that's I feel like that's what I did a year, a year ago and was like I am less happy than I was mm -hmm. um, and I want to change that. And it, the, it's the Absolutely. best feeling in the world when you can look back and say like, I did something about it. Um, and it might be really hard along the way, but hopefully you have people in your life to support you on that journey. Um, and you always have us to complain in your ear as you are of working That's what towards we're here that. for. Um, <sighs> anyway, well, um, happy holidays, guys. Yeah. Happy new year. I guess we'll, We'll see you, see you in 2019. Yeah, we've got some some stuff brewing that we're. I always feel so lame. I mean, like, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we are we are working on something that's going to be a little different, mm -hmm. and we'll have 2019. Look forward to hearing all about yeah, it once we, will, we figure out what it is. Yeah, and we'll we'll uh, we'll update you when we yeah when we have our shit together. Um, but. I, yeah, I think I just want to say thank you guys so much again for all of the support and, and the love. Uh, we, we really, really wouldn't be here if you guys didn't tune in every week. And I still don't understand why you want to hear us, but it's really nice that you do. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, I, I just think that I, I realized that we just like spent like a 20 minutes just like boasting about ourselves without mm -hmm. kind of acknowledging like this podcast and like what we're actually doing. Yes. Um, goes without saying that obviously this is one of my favorite things that I do mm -hmm. and I'm, I know Bailey agrees and you know we started this podcast kind of being like well let's try it out and see what happens and the fact that we're here over a year later still doing it and still got a lot of exciting things that we want to keep doing with it um it just it's just really um it brightens my day and brightens my year it made my 2018 amazing me as well love you boo bye, bye bitches, bitches.